In what is likely the most well-known passage in all of Scripture, David declares that he experiences the Lord as a shepherd and that the Lord prepares a table for him, even in the presence of his enemies. We explore in this short message today a bit about the cultural conditions and the biographical circumstances that really throw David's statement about the Lord at the table into bright relief. And then we turn to understand that the prophetic momentum of the Psalms shows that the great shepherd prepared a table for his disciples, and he's still doing that today. Let's get into it. And thank you, friend, for joining us at Arlington United. David said that God was his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a comforting image for Keller of God's care. You see, one of the things that's special about this text, if you understand it in context, is that shepherds in the Near East, they didn't just click on the clock and click off the clock. There's a cartoon that we watch. It's got a, you may have seen it. There's a shepherd, there's a sheepdog, and then there's a, a wolf. And they both hit the clock and then they start running around and chasing each other and then they, they clock out and they go home. It's a silly little cartoon. But some of us think of shepherds in that way as being on the clock. In Bible times, shepherds lived among their sheep. I'm thankful that we have a shepherd that lives among his sheep, that he's chosen to be with us 24-7. You can call the name of the Lord and you can find his presence to be manifest at any time in your life. David uh, surveys the different aspects of shepherding that he finds that are helpful, and we could go through each one of those today. But I want to focus on the shepherd who prepares a table. He prepares a table before me. Now, to get what this means to David, it's helpful to remember a few things about the world that David grew up in. We already mentioned that shepherds are 24-7 uh, workers. They live among their flock. That's one cultural difference that's important to understand. Also, I think it's important to understand that there were two values in David's life that made this statement particularly poignant if you look at his own biography. Brother Roy, what I mean by that is, in Near Eastern culture, hospitality was at an even greater premium than it is in ours. I mentioned that the folks in Canada were so kind to us and it was so nice. It gave us a warm feeling. It made us feel great inside. But if they hadn't been all that nice, if there hadn't been a big basket in the hotel room, to be honest, there's a restaurant right down the corner. We could, and there's a grocery store. We could have gone and gotten things that we needed. The hospitality was a wonderful Christian thing to do, but it wasn't necessary for our survival. One of the reasons that hospitality is so important in Near Eastern cultures was at this time, there weren't 7-Elevens everywhere. There weren't Kroger's everywhere. And in this culture, it was a, a, a wide, wide variety of, of weather. It could be 110 degrees during the day, but 20 or 30 degrees at night, 40 degrees at night. And so you had to prepare um, 
almost for a lot of different types of extremes of weather. Water was not common. Uh, there were wells where you could find water, but you had to know where they were. And so if you were traveling, hospitality was not the difference between having a nice journey and a not nice journey. Literally, it could be the difference between making your journey or failing. In other words, succumbing to the elements or dying. So hospitality was not a matter of graciousness so much as it was a matter of life and death. You read in Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey about this, how hospitality came to have such an outsized role in their culture that if you snubbed someone in hospitality, wars were fought over that kind of thing because it was, just to use an illustration, if I were to just walk up to you and just, Martin, just, just, hit you in the face. Well, y'all would see me get, well, it depends on how developed his self-control was, but if I'm going to pick on anybody, it's not going to be Martin. He's pretty big. But in our culture, that would be, we even have a saying, a slap in the face. Their hospitality was that way. And so hospitality was critically important. Another value that was important in David's culture, and again, you see this in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey and other period pieces of the time in the Mediterranean Basin was the idea of reward for valiant fighting. If soldiers fought valiantly, there was no VA to assure their health care. There was no um, government programs to assist them when they were through the war. And so it was an important part of this culture that if you fought a battle and risk your life and risk your honor for warfare, that you were rewarded richly if the battle was won. There was a, a, if there was a triumph, you got to participate in all the things of the conquered people, the riches and the lands and all of those things. They were given to you, and there was honor associated with successful warfare. So hospitality and honor with warfare. Now, what, why are you giving me a, a cultural lesson in Near Eastern culture in 1000 B.C.? Because in David's life, in his personal biography, both of these cultural values, David got the short end of the stick. And some things that just seemed like biographical details were actually slaps in his face. I'll point out two to you. Let's talk about preparing a table and hospitality. David wasn't even welcome, the scriptural text indicates, in his own home, Sister Sarah. Do you recall in 1 Samuel when the prophet came to anoint the next king and he said, Jesse, where are all your sons? And Jesse lines up all his sons. And it's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. And all of these men were good looking. They were like the young men that we have here at the church. They were all strapping young men. They were handsome. They appeared well. Uh, before the prophet, and he thought, surely this will be the one, surely this will be the one. You know the story. And finally, Samuel turns around to Jesse, and he said, do you have any more sons? And it was only then that Jesse acknowledged paternity of David. Hospitality, even in his old home, was cut off from David. Yeah. Now, there is a clue in the, the text where it mentions that David was ruddy of countenance, sort of red-faced. This, this is not mentioned of the other brothers. And so it's possible that David looked different 
from the other brothers. If you look at Psalm 51 and 5, David's personal testimony is that he was born in sin and in iniquity his mother conceived him. Many Old Testament scholars believe that based on these two texts, David was actually not a full-blooded son of, his, of, of Jesse and that maybe he had a different father. Maybe he was a, a half-brother to the rest of his brothers. But for whatever reason, hospitality, even in his own home, was not extended to David, Brother Roy. Can you imagine? We've just come through the Thanksgiving holiday, and I, I want to be kind here, but I'll just make a statement. You're mature Christians. Holidays are not as joyous for every family as they would like for it to be. Sometimes there are tensions, and sometimes there are, there are histories, and sometimes there's things that have happened that make holidays different for some families. Can you imagine in David's family not even being welcome in your own home? Put that against David's statement. He prepares a table before me. My shepherd, my shepherd prepares a table before me. See, it's not just I was hungry and my shepherd prepared for me. It's that the Lord was making up a severe deficit that was felt in David's life. And in the context of shepherding, what he's cluing us into is that what his own biologic family failed to provide, David found in the Lord because a table was prepared for him. The welcome, the home feeling, the, 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 the unconditional acceptance and, and love and, and the, 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 the feeling that I, I, I can always go home. It's one definition of home. Home is where you go when you've got nowhere else to go and they have to take you in. That's a really good definition of home. And David found that not with Jesse, but he did find that with the Lord. How many are thankful that the Lord prepares a table before us? Secondly, in honor, David was the only one. And, and 1 Samuel 17 is such a famous story that it may be the most famous story. David and Goliath is used across cultures to represent an unfair fight where the little guy wins. It's such an inspirational story that sometimes we can lose the understanding of how dangerous for David that it was. And then here's Saul. Saul, who stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He was kind of Victor, I can't say his last name. It starts with a W. He's 7-4. <laughs> Brother Mark knows how to say it. But that big, tall guy, that was kind of Saul. He was no little fella. And yet this giant comes, and you find Saul cowering in his tent. And then he says, hey, David, how'd you like to wear my armor? And it's almost comical that David puts on this big armor and he's, he's clunking around and it looks like uh, maybe Jude had put on Brother Corey's suit. Corey would be a, a big, strong guy. Can you imagine Jude trying to wear some body armor that Corey brought in here or that Martine brought in here? It, it, it just looked comical almost. But the implication from the story is that even at this moment, Saul appears to be scheming because from a distance, Brother Mark, you couldn't have identified who was in that armor. 
And if David had been wearing Saul's armor and had brought down Goliath, Saul could have taken the credit. It's a fascinating story because you see from, from that moment on, Saul's interaction with David is so twisted. It, it's not wholesome. It's not right. And rather than honoring David and celebrating him, Saul's jealousy and his rage led him to even take a spear one day and try to pin David to the wall. Rather than having a feast in David's honor, in 1 Samuel you find that when they would feast on the new moon, that, Daniel's, uh, excuse me, that David's place is empty because he was fleeing the wrath of Saul. Hmm. Saul. Jesse doesn't prepare a meal. And yet, Saul doesn't prepare a banquet. David, the reluctant hero, the shepherd boy, the one who saves the nation, who later be king, can't find with his natural father, nor can he find with his national father the things that are owed him. He can't find the acceptance and the peace. He doesn't even get treated fairly, Sister Sarah. Can I just... <laughs> Get you to be honest for just a moment. Is there anybody that's ever been treated unfairly? Ever? From time to time. David is your brother in arms. But David said, you know what? My shepherd, my natural father didn't, didn't treat me right. My national father didn't give me my due. In fact, he tried to kill me because of jealousy. But my shepherd, he's prepared a table for me. Now, I just want to pivot for a moment and remind you that psalms are sometimes prophecies. If you go back one psalm from 23 to Psalm 22, it begins, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to you? It should. It was one of the seven pronouncements that Jesus made from the cross. Now, there are many uh, speculations as to exactly what Jesus was feeling and experiencing when he said that to, and exactly why he said it. My personal belief is that Jesus was doing on the cross what he did in the entirety of his life. He prayed the Psalms as a Jewish person, and those were how he felt close to the presence of God. And so he was in a time of extreme distress. He began another prayer. And it began, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you look through that psalm, it's prophetic of many things that happened to Jesus. It talks about them gambling for his vesture and his garments that happened at the foot of the cross. It mentions in verse 14, I believe it is, of Psalm 22, that they have pierced my hands and my feet. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Clearly, Psalm 22 is prophetic of the experience of Jesus. It begins in such tragedy. God, why have you forsaken me? It ends with three of the most powerful words in the scriptural witness. He has acted. He has acted. You see, the prayer that Jesus began on the cross began with dereliction and questioning, but it ends with the comfort of God's action. And Jesus began a prayer, Psalm 22, on the cross that in itself 
prophesied that God would take action on earth to unravel injustice. It was exactly what was happening in Jesus' life. God had come in Christ to undo everything wrong through the resurrection. God had acted in Christ. A prophetic psalm that says God has acted. And oh, in Jesus did he evermore act. In Christ, he reconciled the world unto himself. And he made death dead. And he made life to live. And he made healing possible. And he made the resurrection not only of our bodies, but of our souls possible through his action on the cross. Psalm 22 is prophetic toward that. If that is true, and I believe that it is, could I submit to you today that Psalm 23 contains a prophetic edge? That Psalm 23 as well has a prophecy of sorts of what Christ would be in our lives. David said, the Lord, Adonai, is my shepherd. And Jesus in John 10 said, I am the good shepherd. And verse 11, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. By making that statement, I believe that Jesus was laying claim to the prophetic heritage of Psalm 23 and that everything that we could say about the shepherd in Psalm 23, we could say about Adonai and we can also say about Christ because Jesus is saying, I am that shepherd for you. Now, finally, let's take a look at Psalm 23 and 5. We read it. We talked about what it might have meant for David. Now we've said that Jesus himself has laid claim to this heritage of prophecy in the Psalms. That Jesus prayed the Psalms. That Jesus embodied their meaning in their life. And so what can it mean when Jesus says of himself, I prepare a table before you. Well, the last night before his crucifixion, when he could have been doing anything, Jesus spent the time preparing a Passover meal for his disciples. And he prepared a meal for them. And in the middle of that meal, he lifted a cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he lifted the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. On the third and last recorded appearance in the book of John, they had fished and fished and fished, and Jesus called out, and he said, why don't you try the other side of the boat? And again, it's almost comical. It has this, this, this upside-down quality of, of these fishermen who are experts, and then here's the carpenter from the shore, the architect, who says, hey, why don't you try that side? I think if I had been Peter and John and had been toiling... I don't know what I would have done. If I'd have known it was the Lord, Brother Jim, I hope I would have obeyed. But if it was just some guy on the beach, I think I would have said, hey, I, I know how to fish. You, you, you stay over there. I, I know what I'm doing here. But the Bible says there are 153 large fish, and the boat didn't even sink. They got it in to the, to the land. But they're on the land. Jesus says three words, come and dine. And he made a little fire there, and he had some fish that were boiling. Where did he get those fish? These are questions I ask. You know, I don't know if he just walked to the water and said, hey, and they, they came out. 
or if he had his own net. I don't know, Phil, if he had some bait with him. I, I don't know. What I do know is, in his final appearance to his disciples, Jesus spread a table for them. Here's the principle. Whatever you lack in your family of origin, whatever you lack in your community, whatever you lack in your history, however you've been mistreated, however you've been done wrong, whatever lack there is in your life, whatever you need today, Jesus has a table. And he doesn't even have to wait until the victory is won because he counts us in his own triumph. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, he always causes us to triumph in Christ. And Romans 8.37 says, we are now more than conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror? How can you be more than a conqueror? Right? Even, how does that even make sense? Can I submit to you that a conqueror only rules as long as his might rules? A conqueror only rules as long as his sword is the sharpest and his arrows fly the truest or his army is the greatest or his strength is the most virile. That's not how we win, Scott. We win so long as Christ is on the throne. And he said in Matthew 28, 28 and 18, all power in heaven and in earth is given unto me. We get to eat in the presence of our enemies. I mean, Judas is sitting there. And Jesus says, hey, boys, why don't we have something to eat and drink? The enemy is still afoot in our world. And Jesus says, I'm going to spread a table and make sure that my disciples have all that they need today. But you stand with me. There's a Lord that's here today, and he has a table for you. He has a table that represents everything you need. He has a table that represents goodness. He has a table that represents sustenance. He has a table that represents peace. And he wants to give that to you today. Just a few moments, we're going to receive the elements. Young men, y'all can go, Phil and, and Eli and Chad. These young men are going to come and they're going to serve us. And we have some, some grape juice and some bread. Brother Kelly, thank you for making our unleavened bread today that we have. We appreciate that so much. If you haven't received communion with us before, Kelly's retired now, but he's a chef. And he makes us a loaf of unleavened bread that we break from. And we'll have that together. As we prepare to receive communion, I want to remind you that Jesus was not only meeting their physical needs that night, he was inaugurating a new covenant. Now, at our church, we have what we call an open communion table in that if your conscience is clear before God and you desire to receive communion, you don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a, a card-carrying member of any kind. You just have to have a clear conscience before the Lord. We leave that to you, between you and the Lord. But if you want to receive communion today, then we welcome you uh, to the communion table. Name of the Lord. What a shepherd. What a sacrifice. The table that he prepares is not a table with items that were bought cheaply or conveniently. But he has purchased this meal for us 
this bread, this cup with his own life. And scripture teaches us that he did it gladly, anticipating the joy that was coming when he could prepare a table for his friends. He's counted you his friend today. Will you partake of his table? Will you take advantage of that wonderful opportunity to have your sins covered in his blood and to have fellowship with his body? Thank you, friend, for joining us at All Into United.